get what you want, you don't want it. If I gave you the moon, you'd go tired of it soon. Hello, my name is Emmett Lacuna, and you are listening to the Moles Report podcast. And for this episode, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm actually going to be reading out a paper I gave for Laneway Learning, which is an organization here in Melbourne, which allows people to teach classes on a subject of their choice. Now, I attended a one of these Laneway Learning sessions on the 27th of March, and I had chosen to talk about Mr. Grant Morrison. And they very kindly allowed me to do that. So I actually recorded the talk, and what I discovered was that there was some works going on outside on the street while I was giving the talk, and when I listened to the recording, you can actually hear the background noise. is quite loud. So what I've decided to do is re-record for you folks the talk I gave on that night. So it's exactly the paper I read out, uh, except I've obviously I'm not going to try and repeat all the asides I made or whatever comments were made in relation to the text. Uh, but I'm going to include at the end of this the Q&A session that featured on the night. Uh, so what I actually did was I, I'm studying for a paper on Grant Morrison and I thought I would try and test out some of my ideas on an audience and lane learning very kindly allowed me to. Uh, so my paper was broken down into five different sections. Each section uh, t- was titled something reflecting Morrison's career or a topic of interest to Morrison. So the different sections are as above so below, which is the famous phrase attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, Ken Kniesel, Frederick Wertham was fucking right, old beard and no beard, and McDonald's. So these are the five sections that the my talk was broken down into. Um, I would also like, before I start <laughs> before I start reading the paper I gave out, I would just like to say a quick thanks to Colin Smith from Too Busy Thinking About My Comics, Ryan from Geek of Oz, and Andrew Constant, writer of Torn for Gestalt Comics. All, all three lads gave me some great feedback on the paper, and I'm very appreciative. Um, also, I thank my wife Stephanie for actually kicking me out of the door and making me do this in the first place, because uh, she just thought I should actually maybe try and do something with all the stuff in my head. So I give a little talk. So here we go. Uh, the paper was called Grant Morrison 101: Magic and Marketing. Here's the first section. As above, so below. Lingui Learning sent me an email with some speakers' tips for tonight's class. One that caught my eye was start broad, end narrow. That struck me as a particularly Morrison-like touch. In his books, stories often begin with a bang, a shock delivered to the reader to disorient them. Just when you feel you have learnt the rules of this new game, the adventure peters out into an anticlimax, or just drifts off. When reading books like The Filth, Doom Patrol, or even his slightly more conventional work on popular superhero titles like The X-Men or Superman, Batman. It is a mistake to assume that if you skip to the end, you will learn what this latest weird Morrison fable is all about. He makes his readers work for their understanding, and tends not to deliver on his promise to give you answers. Or you learn that he already had, you just didn't notice. Morrison's tricky like that. The Invisibles is still seen by many as Morrison's masterpiece. It was the book that consolidated his reputation and launched him onto more profitable mainstream comics. While working on popular superheroes like JLA, New X-Men, and Batman Incorporated, though, 
Morrison has retained that same countercultural edge he pursued with the Invisibles, a sniff of psychedelia wafting off the pages of brightly coloured superfolk punching each other. His arrival reminded readers, inspiring other writers in turn, that superhero comics are actually deeply weird and strange, that they should never be boring, that they are modern fantasies. So when Morrison is described as the writer behind New X-Men and Invisibles, or The Filth and Batman Incorporated, we are being told that for a sustained period of his career he has managed to straddle the line between popular commercial American superhero comics and nightmarish visions fueled by paranoia, depression, sublimated anger at modern politics, and sexual frustration. So let's talk about The Invisibles. In the broadest possible terms, this is a story about a teenage delinquent from Liverpool who is recruited by a cell of terrorists to fight against the forces of law and order. Dane had a hopeless future waiting for him of numbing his mind with drugs and probable jail time. Instead, he meets a pack of punk magicians and wisecracking assassins who offer him excitement and a chance to break the system, which it turns out is being controlled by forces external to our reality known as Archons. Only after Dane becomes enlightened, taking the name of his childhood bogeyman, Jack Frost, that marks his transition to inner Buddhahood, does he discover his would-be compatriots in the war are damaged and broken characters. At that point we start to see the story from multiple points of view. Jack's immediate allies, as well as his enemies, begin to feature in their own standalone adventures. In one of the most celebrated stories in the series, issue 12's Best Man Fall, Morrison shows us the life of an enemy soldier right to the moment of his death, at the hands of nominal hero King Mobe back in the first issue. Previously, the reader saw this man as a faceless thug in the employee of the evil authoritarian fascists that were trying to brainwash Dane. In the wake of Best Man Fall, he began to question the good versus evil, order versus freedom storyline we are apparently reading. The overarching narrative promises an incredible climax with the implication that the plot is building to a final battle between the Invisibles and the forces of the Archons in 2012, the end of the world. Needless to say, that is not what happens. Dane, who becomes Jack, is the first character we see become aware that reality as we know it is a lie, that the war being fought during the course of the Invisibles is a false one. As the story progresses, we get to know King Moe, Lord Fanny, Ragged Robin, and Boy, the other members of this cell, and discover how they too saw behind the curtain through individual flashbacks. But to read the story in sequence suggests an interpretation that Jack is the first to learn the truth. The others are shown to be lagging behind Jack. Morrison, in interviews promoting his earlier book, Doom Patrol, had described the experience of reading a comic as being similar to time travel. You can read from page to page in a linear fashion, but you can also turn the pages backwards to reread them, or revisit individual panels out of sequence. The idea that the Invisible is the comic is a time machine is one that Grant Morrison actually includes as a plot point connected to the character of Ragged Robin. The story begins with Dane's initiation, and so everything that follows occurs after, including the initiations of the other members of the cell. This happens when the characters discover Barbolith, which, like Arthur C. Clarke's Monolith in 2001, or Philip K. Dick's Mavalis, causes those who encounter it to become more evolved. Barbolith resembles a giant traffic light stop sign, symbolizing that humanity is not yet ready to make the jump to the next stage of evolution. The boy does not enjoy murder like King Mobe, and as a result rejects the man who in a different kind of fantasy narrative would be his mentor. There is no Gandalf or Morpheus in The Invisibles. 
Life just gets cheaper and cheaper, Moab jokes mid-gun battle. He actually wants to star in his own gratuitously violent action movie. Which is how he sees the events of The Invisibles. The story ends when the other characters realise that Jack's way is the right one. Why fight the enemy when you can love them? It lasts as long as it does because the characters continue to delay that understanding in order to play at being spies, superheroes and porn stars, fighting to save a world only to perpetuate the war. Terence McKenna said civilization is six billion people trying to make themselves happy by standing on each other's shoulders and kicking each other's teeth in. The Invisibles tries to imagine what would happen if the population of the world stopped doing that for a day, and the giant stop sign in the sky turns from red to green. The Invisibles is also the story of how Grant Morrison figured out how to put all the crazy ideas in his head on paper and make money from them. He synthesizes his fascinations with comics, conspiracy theories, the British television shows of his childhood, magic and sex into a form that sells. Morrison calls the Invisibles a hyper-sigil, meaning it is his way of trying to bring about change in the world, the change himself, through this work of fiction. He just needed to convince other people to believe him. How he did it was twofold. First, the series is chock full of references that fellow travellers would recognise of such breadth and variety that it becomes freak flypaper. Everyone who read The Invisibles was attracted by some aspect that had personal importance to them, and then began typing in search engines queries to Excite or Yahoo to learn more about the various other rabbit holes they found within the comic. Morrison delivered a condensed primer to every weird theory, counterculture tome, and underground philosophy he could think of, channel hopping between them in scripts that tantalized those curious enough that they wanted to learn more. In the first issue, titled Dead Beatles, Dane has a vision of Stuart Sutcliffe and John Lennon arguing about what it means to be alive. In the fifth issue, Arcadia, Byron and Shelley have a similar, though far more verbose, discussion of fate and destiny, hope and despair. Morrison draws an equivalence here between pop and poetry. There is no high and low. He quotes Hermes Trismegistus's line, as above, so below, with all its connotations of Gnostic mysteries and high art. Then as King Moab invoked the spirit of John Lennon, as he claims to have done himself. In the world of Grant Morrison, your gods are the ones you find interesting. Culture is what turns you on. Having got people's attention with a series that seemed to somehow be about everything all at once, Morrison then made his next move. He put himself in the comic. He had previous form on this. In his comic Animal Man, Morrison appears to his traumatized protagonist Buddy Baker, who has lost his family, and has learned that he is a fictional character in a comic book. The seemingly heartless writer God explains that comic fans want violence and misery. In order to make his crust... Morrison's Glasgow home is depicted as being sparsely furnished, with a computer and printer set up on a narrow table beside a window that has a heater perched upon it. He has to give the audience what they want. Eventually, though, he takes pity on Buddy and gives him his happy ending. Having smashed the fourth wall into smithereens, then sold the pieces off like gift shop trinkets, a new idea was planted in Morrison's mind. What if travel in the opposite direction was also possible? As above, so below. King Mo becomes his avatar in the world of the Invisibles, and Morrison began to pattern his own lifestyle after that of the too-cool-for-school super-spy, as he had done before with Animal Man. This time, though, he did not distinguish himself as the writer from the character he was writing about. He announced to fans that he had become King Mo. The tone of the books changed. The literary pretensions dropped out in favour of style, fashion, freaky sex, and science-fiction action sequences. That this should also happen to be a more commercially viable proposition for a comic than the first volume was a happy coincidence. 
King Mo, having survived a particularly horrible torture experience in the first volume of the series, which Morrison claimed had consequences for him in real life, he developed a topical form of flesh-eating virus, gets to have a lot more fun in subsequent adventures. In the letters pages of The Invisibles, Morrison outlined how this relationship with his fictional alter ego worked. His character got sick and almost died, so he got sick and almost died. His character met a gorgeous, sexy redhead, so he in turn met a gorgeous, sexy redhead. This, he explained to readers, was the essence of magic. Putting your wishes out into the world as part of a self-performed rite, and then receiving them back. Wouldn't you like to learn how to change the world, he asked. Translation, wouldn't you like a sexy girlfriend? Then read the Invisibles, and my secrets will be revealed. At this point, the voice of the skeptic pipes up. Either this guy is the real deal, a Hermes Trismegistus for the pre-millennial age, or he's a bald Tony Robbins without the jawline. Another fun tidbit. Trismegistus, the chap who keeps mentioned a lot in studies of magic and Gnosticism, fictional. He never existed. Ken Kniesel. Stories that surround Morrison are almost as interesting as the scripts he puts on paper. In part, this is due to his Kenny relationship with media. He is a fulsome interviewee, and his press makes for essential reading. Oftentimes, the understanding of critics becomes dependent on answers given by Morrison to the press, or in interviews with comics websites. This can be regarded as needlessly obscure on his part as a writer. The text should surely be all that is needed, but Morrison does not believe in the death of the author. To understand him, you need to come to him. To read, read books by Morrison is to read about Morrison. Which brings us to poor Ken Kniesel. Flex Mentolo was a miniseries from Grant Morrison and frequent collaborator Frank Whiteley, released in 1996. It is a willfully obscure superhero soap opera that opens with character Wally Sage's suicide attempt and ends with an invasion of superheroes here to save the world. Drawing on the comics of his childhood, Morrison's story is a metaphor for personal depression and the loss of innocence, then extending outwards to examine the same comics that gave him so much joy as a kid. Flex Mentolo becomes a rescue mission to save superhero books from a decade of misery and realism. Morrison's point is not a subtle one. The book is revealed to be an allergic reaction to Alan Moore's Watchmen, or in his magical terminology, a banishment ceremony, which he describes in his comic book history memoir, Super Gods, as a stifling, self-regarding, perfect yet mean-spirited microcosmos, followed by the complaint that, as a 25-year-old, Morrison was alone in my negative judgment. The narrative of Flex Mentolo is structured so that the reader and the characters together endure different periods of comic history through the plot, summarizing decades of publishing material and trends in four issues. Flex himself is a typical muscle man wearing little more than a leopard print leotard, who was dreamt up by Wally Sage when he was a child as a superhero character that featured in his primitive drawings. In his own fictional world, Flex discovers hints of a conspiracy, and tracks them through a series of encounters mirroring the transition from the rigid morality of post-war Golden Age comics to the weird absurdity of the Silver Age, and then landing flat on his face in the mud and grime of the post-Watchman modern era, the so-called Dark Age. Wally, meanwhile, is dying from a drug overdose, speaking to a suicide helpline volunteer and pouring out his life story. He describes how comics were an outlet for him as a child, that then became more concerned with violence and pornography as he grew into adolescence. Like Morrison, he tries to conjure up girlfriends on poorly drawn pages, which precipitates his fall into depression and drugs. 
Eventually, the story becomes a conflict between Flex and the superhero's belief in a better future, and the pessimism of Wally, as well as the comic readers who have apparently been seduced by Alan Moore's alleged realism. It's an interesting book and sums up a lot of persistent themes from Morrison's work. What happened next changed matters considerably. For Flex Mentolo, the character was based liberally on the classic Charles Atlas fitness routine ads. Enter Ken Cleasel. It was early 1998 and I was attending prep school in Backwoods, Maine. The Flex Mentolo trade was actually solicited to be released on April 1st, 1998. It was a brand new black and white Frank Quitely cover, which I've never seen anywhere since then, used in the solicitation, and it was listed at DiamondComics.com's shipping next week schedule and everything, but it was abruptly and inexplicably cancelled before it could ship. Sometime before then, I'd ordered the Charles Atlas course since it was the closest thing to Flex merchandise I could think of, and I desperately wanted a Flex Mentolo action figure or poster or something. In one of my last emails to the company after finalizing my purchase, I casually mentioned Flex Mentolo as an example of how pervasive and influential Charles Atlas had been on popular culture, that he'd even inspired this fantastic comic book. I recommended that they check it out, and they thanked me for the recommendation. Then a couple of years later, I was living in San Francisco and got a mysterious phone call out of the blue from a guy who told me he was the head of Charles Atlas Limited, asking if he could fly me out to New York testify in his case against DC Comics. Needless to say, I was completely floored, but it at least explained why the flex trade never saw print. I didn't go to New York because I couldn't afford to miss work. Subsequently, Kniesel became known as the man who killed Flex Mentolo. Copies of the limited run of issues would sell on eBay for $60 plus. Any chance of a trade paperback reprinting the story was lost with the impending court case. As it happens, DC won, but for some reason refused to publish the title regardless. For years, arguments online surrounding the issues of digital piracy would come back to Flex Mentolo. Why do I download comics illegally? Because the man won't let me read Flex Mentolo. It gained the reputation of being the greatest thing Morrison ever wrote, ever would write, that he hated Kniesel. The fellow himself would often post online on sites, he still does in fact, and so had to defend himself again and again. As he would later say, I was just an over-enthusiastic fanboy gushing about one of my favourite comic books, but maybe I should have kept my big mouth shut. Fortunately, the story has a happy ending. Morrison had been invited by Joe Quesada at Marvel Comics to pitch for the X-Men. For anyone curious, the pitch itself is included with trades of the series, and is actually an excellent example of how to outline such a proposal for a publisher. At any rate, Morrison wanted to use a character that was no longer available due to being dead. Colossus, who got better once Johnson Wayden wanted him. A discussion on a Morrison fan site attracted Kniesel, who suggested Morrison use the character Emma Frost, which is exactly what happened. Morrison included Frost and built her up in the series to become one of the best characters. Kniesel and Morrison eventually met at San Diego Comic Con, with the fanboy surprised to be recognised as the Emma Frost guy. We were discussing Emma and what a great suggestion she was, and how she was the perfect character for him to write, his voice, etc. I even mentioned him the dream that had led me to make the suggestion in the first place. Then he mentioned that Emma Frost was my karma for Flex. I grabbed his arm and said, do you know about that? He said, of course I know about that. I explained that it was completely unintentional, but he seemed to understand already. And last year, finally 14 years after it was first solicited, DC published the trade. Flex Mintlow lives. Frederick Wortham was fucking right. That line happens to be my favourite quote from the vast number of memorable Morrison quips and weird outbursts. It features in Flex Mentolo, where Wally Sage disgusted at how his childhood comics had become perverse power fantasies. 
Wortham is the eternal enemy of fandom for his testimony to Congress, the United States Senate Committee on Juvenile Delinquency, held on April 21st, 22nd, June 4th, 1954, as well as the theories outlined in his book, The Seduction of the Innocent, that, including that comics inspire teen delinquency and what was then regarded as a psychological illness, homosexuality. Orson has a few digs at the man at Supergods. The hollow spectre of Dr. Wortham can take it from me that the young readers of Batman saw only a wish dream of freedom and high adventure. It is Wortham whose name belongs in the annals of perversity, not Batman's. Recently, there have even been reports that his research was deliberately fudged in order to confirm an unusually strong bias towards the medium. Carol Tilly's Seducing the Innocent, Frederick Wortham, and the falsifications that helped condemn comics. In the history of comics, Frederick Wortham is a real-life supervillain. The line from Flex indicates just how fallen Morrison sees the storytelling genre of superheroes as having become. The miniseries explored ideas that he would later develop further in JLA, All-Star Superman, Seven Soldiers, and Final Crisis, that comics need to be fun again. Morrison moved away from the rich intertextuality of his earlier work. His introduction to the first volume of Doom Troll includes a bibliography of titles that inspired that weird and wonderful book, one of his most successful early works. Philosopher Stephen Trevero, in his book Doom Patrols, named in Tribute, described that series as follows. A single page of Doom Patrol may also contain allusions and references to Gnostic heresies, pop music, and chaos theory, to Thomas De Quincey and Andy Warhol and Jack Kirby, to the Brothers Grimm and Salvador Dali and Mr. Ed, to X-Ray Specs and My Bloody Valentine and T.S. Eliot and Terence McKenna. With Flex Mentolo, Morrison becomes less interested in referencing external material and becomes fascinated with the nature of comic continuity. Bringing to bear a lifetime of comic, comics reading, his superhero fiction looks inward. His devotion to the artistic legacy of Jack Kirby takes centre stage in his books for DC, with Morrison attempting to update series by the man fans refer to as the King, such as the New Gods and OMAC for contemporary readership. His run on Batman tried to merge every single version of the character, from the carefree swashbuckler of the Adam West television show era to the grim avenger of the 1980s. In the 2000s, following an acrimonious breakup with Marvel Comics in the wake of his departure from the X-Men, he pitched to then-Vice President Dan Didio the concept of the so-called DC Universe, meaning every story ever written about characters published by the company that feature in a shared continuity, becoming an actual entity. Again, this takes us back to the notion of fictional worlds having an existence all of their own, as explored in Animal Man and The Invisibles. Because the characters published by DC have been around for decades, outliving their careers and continuing to develop, Morrison is proposing that they have just as much a right to be considered alive. It is a concept typical of certain kinds of magical thinking. It also happens to be a neat way of excusing decades of creator rights abuses, as Morrison does within Super Gods. Creators who were outlived by their fictional characters could probably have done with a heftier cut of the financial rewards of their work earned the publisher that owns these creations. Regardless, what Morrison attempted was to make commercial comics more meaningful. The so-called fanboy buys his chosen title because he always has done so. This is not meant to exclude women readers of comics, I'm simply describing a hypothetical male fan. As such, their engagement with these comics is intense due to the constant habitual act of reading every monthly issue, but self-perpetuating with little intellectual investment. If characters die, it doesn't matter. They'll come back to life eventually. If the world ends, it doesn't matter. Everything will be alright again next month. It's pop nihilism. Somehow, Morrison still manages to blame Alan Moore for this, of course. 
The two best examples of Morrison's approach are All-Star Superman, which beautifully illustrated by Frank Whiteley features as Superman contemplating his own death and the importance of a Superman, and Seven Soldiers, a 30-something issue maxi-series that was intended to reinvigorate a number of forgotten or fallow concepts and personifies in a race of time-traveling scavengers called the Shida that same nihilism that stripmines comic history for short-term profit. All-Star is rightly regarded as one of the greatest Superman stories ever told, effective in its celebration of old-school comics adventures combined with a mature thoughtfulness. For many fans, it eclipses The Invisibles or Doom Patrol as Morrison's best work. Seven Soldiers, While It Ran was an excellent series that remains an enjoyable read, but due to its self-contained nature, the series has the seven heroes fight the Sheeta on multiple fronts, with most of the protagonists never actually meeting. Its attempt at reinvigorating classic DC characters were largely ignored. Final Crisis was intended by Morrison as a follow-on from that book, a story about superhero comic storytelling that mushroomed into a massive event crossover, becoming bloated and unwieldy. At best, it is a stunning failure, with some sequences that are marvellous, but do not carry their energy forward. As the action skips and jumps across a confusing plot involving dying gods and corrupted superheroes. The series concluded in early 2009 with Morrison making a metaphorical appeal to his fellow writers and publisher to stop interfering with this universe of stories to let it grow organically. In 2011, DC restarted the clock on its stable of characters once again, with the continuity wiped clear in order to attract a wider audience imagined to be put off by decades of history. Morrison's appeal had fallen on deaf ears. At present, Morrison is moving away from multi comics, announcing that he is focusing on independent projects such as Happy, published by Image, as well as upcoming work with legendary comics. Yet, for all his railing against nihilism of fans, the depressing realism of Moore, and the imitators that follows, it is Morrison's The Filth, his darkest, most disturbing work, a companion piece to Invisibles, absent any of that earlier book's optimism about the future, that is the most hopeful. The filth is concerned with Greg Feely, an ordinary schlub who discovers he is the alter-ego of super-spy Ed Slade. He, in turn, is an operative for The Hand, which protects society from threats, such as super-science run amok. The story reads like a James Bond adventure inserted into Nicholas Rogue's film performance. Feely's transition into Slade is not an easy one, with the other members of The Hand frustrated at his refusal to believe that the life he knew was a false one. Slade is real. Feely is fictional. But his former life, concerned with minding his own business and caring for his sick cat, feels more real, whereas Slade is partnered up with a communist assassin chimp. The filth flirts with multiple interpretations throughout its run. Who is real? Feely or Slade? Is this really happening at all? Is Feely dying and these fantasies the product of his, his brain spasming moments before the death? And yet again we have Morrison descended to the text personified either as Feely in an imagined alternate history when he did not become famous and just stayed at home with his cat, or as a gigantic disembodied hand holding a pen. The agents of the hand use the ink from this pen to create a fictional universe of their own to observe, tacitly admitting that they know they are fictional themselves. Unlike in The Invisibles, fiction and reality do not travel interchangeably. The filth is a descent into misery and revulsion, or as Morrison might term it in his references to magic, the realm of the cliff-off. In writing the series, Morrison exposed himself to as much negative influence as he could as part of a purging ritual, and hopefully come out the other side still sane. The experience proved to be an entirely upsetting one to write, and readers in turn are put through the ringer in order to earn the oblique utopian ending of the series, where nobody becomes a messiah. 
The events of the filth confront Feely with the realisation that his love for his cat and refusal to relate to his neighbours are actually incredibly selfish acts. Ordinary people like Feely retreat from society, leaving the likes of the Hand to clean up the messes of a world inhabited by self-absorbed individuals. The imagery of the filth is disturbing, at times deranged, but its effect on the reader is ultimately positive, and Morrison carries off his project here far more successfully than with the continuity noodling of Final Crisis. The message of the book itself can be seen as a rejoinder to the installation of comic fandom, so concerned with impossible fantasy that social interaction is ignored. To manhandle a quote from Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, the true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Old Beard and No Beard I have something of a confession to make. Years ago, I was employed by a library to venture down to their archives wearing what looked like a radiation suit and Hoover books. I would run the nozzle of the portable vacuum along the edge of the musty pages, some tomes centuries old. Occasionally I would hear a slight ripping sound. One afternoon, when my friend Dengus and I were at work, plotting to run out into the campus to convince tourists there was a radiation leak, I found a book written by Alistair Crowley about, of course, Alistair Crowley. I have been unable to track it down since, but I still remember the first line. This is not an autobiography. This is an auto-hegeography. Crowley was a man who understood the most important thing about being the great beast was to be talked about. For him, magic was not just an arcane practice, it was a form of self-promotion. Tobias Churton, in his biography, claims Crowley worked as a spy for the British government, that he performed rites to combat Nazism. Whether any of it is true does not seem to matter. He set an example to other would-be magicians, the importance of creating a performative self to capture the imagination of the public. Grant Morrison is one example, and his book Supergods is also an auto-hegeography. Manages to tie the history of comics to his own maturing as a writer, positioning his career as a dialectical movement. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He opens with the childhood comics he once enjoyed, describes the arrival of Alan Moore and subsequent moral quandaries of superhero titles, and then reveals his own work as a corrective to that. It is an astonishing move, the capstone to years of public comments decrying the influence of Moore. To rub salt in the wound, he even takes the time to compliment Zack Snyder's attempt at realising Watchmen for the cinema a film which largely failed to add anything to the original book. Only five years separated two, yet Morrison has managed to portray his contemporary as a much older man, with himself cast as the young Turk, challenging his domination of the genre. Moore is also a magician, and a sometime pop musician. The careers of the two have so many parallels, it is strangely uncanny. Moore has appeared in several guises throughout Morrison's work, typically as a figure of fun. Moore, for his part, has been mostly unresponsive until recently, when he finally rose to the occasion in press interviews. Previously, though, he did not he did include a line in his own comic series, Come Magical Tract Promethea, seemingly aimed at Morrison as it mocks magicians who li- rely on masturbation to charge their sigils. Most recently, though, one of the storylines in Seven Soldiers features two characters who are oddly familiar. Allbeard and Nobeard are pirate chieftains living in subways beneath a city whoring in the trash. This is a humorous piss-take of the rivalry between the two comic book magi, with Morrison even including the line, My beard is magnificent and you're jealous. Mark Singer advances the notion in his book Grant Morrison, combining the worlds of contemporary comics that Seven Soldiers represents no beard extending an olive branch to his rival, albeit with the caveat that he acknowledges Moore's influence was a difficult stage comics had to endure before he came along to make things right. Of course, this rivalry happens to be the most interesting thing about Morrison. 
alien abduction experiences, cross-dressing, drugs consumption, and the sigil charging onanism aside, every time Morrison takes a pop at more, it causes waves in the press and blogosphere. Like Crowley before, Morrison understands the worth of self-promotion. Just as the Invisibles continue to fight with the Archons as long as they got to be heroes, he is happy to perpetuate this war because it yields up profitable dividends. McDonald's The introduction to Morrison's magical practice as self-help pamphlet, Pop Magic, begins with a series of fake testimonials as follows. Without question, this little book is responsible for the tremendous international success story that is Dome Airlines. Sticking pins into replica aircraft may seem an outlandish idea at first, but just ask a couple of our unlucky competitors, Air France and Singapore Airlines for instance, how much they're scoffing at Grant Morrison's pop magic now. Peter de Quimby, Executive VP, Dome Airlines. Every once in a while, a book like Pop Magic just comes along. I'd recommend it wholeheartedly to all my colleagues and our customers. This book is my scourge, my flail, my bible. Magic gives me the edge I need over the competition. Marion Quorn, Senior VP, Aspect Life, Security, Philadelphia. In any company, winning is paramount, but that's the only beginning of a long climb to the next peak of efficiency. What's beyond success? Grant Morrison knows. Everything he writes is a masterpiece of cognitive psychology. If I could find him and suck him off, I would. Solomon Refrain, Professor of Applied Understanding, Tankard University, author of I Will Help You Cope. Quite simply, the best book I have ever read on how to transform both your business and your personal life into the same endless wonderland of creative, erotic, endlessly morphing possibilities. Adamant Broussard, Senior Executive, Creative Consulting, Broussard and Steve. The unusual chap who was once an archivist of everything weird and wonderful as seen in Doom Patrol, somewhere along the line became a besuited company man, excusing vagaries of non-commensurate comics royalties with talk of fictional universes. While contemporaries wrote angry condemnations of the Thatcher-Reagan Cold War era in their work, he reduced it to absurdity with dare, or ironized the mindset of a would-be political assassin in St. Swithin's day. Morrison seems wary of introducing overt political content. It is worth remembering he is six years younger than Tony Blair, another man obsessed with avoiding leftist political activism and seduced by the language and trappings of wealth that come with right-wing politics. They are both men looking for a third way. During a speech at this info convention in 1999, Morrison described McDonald's and Nike as magical entities, their logos powerful sigils that we all instantly recognize and respond to. From this, he has taken the idea that rather than fight corporate culture, he should embrace it, make it his own. Batman Incorporated features the Cape Crusader abandoned knife fights with muggers for a global mission of peace that resembles a corporate takeover. New X-Men introduced the concept of teams of mutant peacekeepers and emergency workers operating out of international branches. As early as the Invisibles, we have the character of Mason Lang, a friendly billionaire who happens to have had an alien abduction experience and is as a result sympathetic to the cause. By the story's conclusion, even King Moe is singing from a different hymn sheet, having embraced corporatism and founded his own business, Techno Occult. He even proffers an aerosol device that can bring about instant enlightenment. The heady future of 2012 seems like an enlightened place. Morrison himself had become a brand. Any story he writes is recognizably his own work, whether it be a superhero comic, a story about cyborg household pets, Middle Eastern deities wrecking havoc in London, or a boy hallucinating in the middle of a hypoglycemic attack. Yet just cast your eye over the list of artists who have worked with him. 
Morrison's most successful comics are the product of excellent collaboration, but the chief credit will generally go to him. Reread Seven Soldiers Number 1 and try to imagine anyone else delivering that book apart from the phenomenally talented J.H. Williams III, or have a look at the issues of The Invisibles or New X-Men, featuring a rushed art due to Morrison's speeding past deadlines. Yet despite this, the books sell largely on the strength of Morrison's name. Arthur Magazine's latest issue includes an article titled On Anarcho-Occultism, This Capitalist Planet and Counterpower. It only costs $5, so it's worth a look. Anyway, in the article, author Jay Babcock lists a number of strange emails he has received lately, including one that reads, How can I meet others who are interested in magic and aren't batshit crazy? In essence, this is Morrison's dilemma. Whenever he discusses his theories about magic, they tend to make him sound slightly deranged. However, he's also found a way of marketing his essential weirdness into highly marketable products. From the counterculture flirtations of the Invisibles so attractive to consumers during the rave era, to the progressive corporatism of New X-Men. From Animal Man being driven to madness at the discovery he's a fictional being, to backwards-talking magician Zatanna in The Seven Soldiers, urging the reader to join her in a spell to make comics better, or adjuring the reader to make better comics themselves. It can be read either way. Morrison is self-aware enough to not come across as a fool in interviews. Reading his responses to questions, he demonstrates a quick wit and ready grasp of esotericism and pop culture, but he also knows to be just weird enough. Other prophets of the weird and wonderful have begun to emerge. Carlos B. Dink McNeil, Australia's own Christian Reed, Jonathan Hickman, Kieran Gillen, Ireland's Maura McHugh, and Paul McCornell. In time, their work will be seen as the next movement, the new weird. That was that was long and rambly. Uh, I hope you got some. Does anyone anyone want to say anything or anyone have any questions or ask or get something started? Jason. Where do you think Seagull is in I really wanted to talk about Seagull. I love Seagull. It it does seem to be a little more of a subtle response on his part to what's happened to comics, particularly superhero comics. And when he has the Shida as the strip mining alien culture ruining comics, ruining our culture, Sea Guy seems to be the same thing. Everything's getting packaged, everything's being marketed to this really cute demographic. And it's a fantastic book. I haven't read the sequel. And I absolutely love it. There's one thing I wanted to mention in the piece though, and I didn't have time for it. Um, Morrison gave an interview. Because Sea Guy came out and wasn't very successful. It didn't sell. And he gave an interview where he complained about this. And his complaint was that the readers didn't understand that it was a medieval grail quest. That Sea Guy's little companion was a quest beast. That it was all these references to Arthurian myth. I was like, yes, that doesn't matter. I mean, it's enjoyable in and of itself. Why, do, why does this have to be the necessary reading? And his implication was people didn't read it because they weren't clever. And I thought that was a big mistake. Because if anything, Sea Guy is one of his most accessible. Books. It's, it's cute art, Cameron Stewart I believe is the art, and uh, it's a very disturbing story, and it creeps up in you that it's, it, you're going somewhere dark, but um, it's, it's bloody brilliant, I really like it. And seriously, buy this man's book. When's it coming out? It's next week. Right, um, The Invisibles is all about the 90s. Bloody Waters is all about the 90s after the fact, and it's really, really good. Jason sums it all up in one handy little package. Satanism, rock music, all in one book, it's great.
what uh, what do you think about his overarching Superman story, or the theory that just his DC work yeah. is one big story over yes. the 20 years that he wrote yes. for them, or has written for them, it's one big story and that he had an idea for a story and then it splintered off into all these other little stories that went into JLA, mm -hmm. DC 1 million, mm -hmm. Final Crisis, All-Star Superman, and then at the end it comes with this one big story. Yeah, well it's, it's, it sort of reflects what he says in Super Gods. But it's all tied to him. Yeah. Like he has actually tied DC to him. Like it's all his work. His work is the touchstones. And he is trying to position himself as the top dog. And that's his main impetus, the competitive urge to be number one. And I think it's really interesting because when we talk about Morrison and, and Moore, and there's so many other guys out there that are so good and they don't get the same amount of attention. Uh, we talk about them as the greatest writers in comics. What we really mean is the greatest writers in American superhero comics. I'm not even sure that's right. You know, but we keep we keep being reductive. But yeah, DC 1 million, that's coming out in a trade omnibus next month. And the ending of Super All-Star Superman time uh, teased that up. The ending of All-Star Superman yeah. basically the start of DC 1 million, yeah. which came out 15 years earlier. Hmm. And the thing is, like, did he really plan all of that? Like, he claims that he planned it all, but like... He's like George really Lucas, he he's did. like a full scout path, you know. <laughs> George Lucas claims he, he'd, rewritten, he'd written all the prequels. Right? Yeah, exactly. He had, like one page. <laughs> all the points. Yeah. So like he, a lot. Yeah. But I think Morrison's better. You know. But yeah, he's. I think he's got these milestones. Yeah. And he's figured out where he wants the story to go. And like he believes, he seems to believe the DC universe is an actual being, or that's 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 what makes it meaningful. That's hard to Because rather it being a bunch of cheap merchandised stories, uh, turned to games, turned to films, all the rest of it, he sees it as something which has. A right to it. It's quite beautiful. I really like that idea. I, I wanted this to be appreciative of Morrison, but at the same time be critical. Because I've read a bunch of books there and they're all like, oh he's amazing. And go, okay, but he's he's a bit of himself. <laughs> let's let's say it, you know. Um, and and some things I don't like. I don't how he uses rivalry to promote himself, but it works. And I think that's what I wanted to talk about. He knows how to sell himself. And that's something that the writers can do too. Well, that, that's when you talk about him and Alan Moore, hmm. it's almost like they both came into comics, and comics, uh, it, it's, the nature of comics is it's very commercial, yeah. even if it doesn't sell as much as film or whatever. Sure. But uh, they're both very clearly very gifted writers and had a body of work, and it's almost that Alan Moore rejected the nature of comics. He He's really distanced himself away from mainstream comics. He, Constantly talks about his qualify that carefully. You know, he, he hasn't rejected comics. No, no, he's sorry, rejected not, you know, yeah. mainstream comics. He's yeah. rejected DC and Marvel. Sure. And he still writes comics. And he still does a lot of work, but yeah. he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want his name on Watchmen and things like sure. that. You know, whereas he gets off on it a bit. Yeah. He clearly does. But yeah. at the same time, he doesn't like, have to be connected anymore because he's already won. Well, he's like, mic drop. I'm doing. <laughs> I'm done. You know, yeah. I've, I've hit all the hit all the. Um, the milestones I need to hit, and you're still trying to live up to me. So yeah. <laughs> I'm over here. Whereas like Morrison seems to have, when they came, both came to that that point, they more sort of left mainstream comics and decided to pursue uh, basically comics and literature. Whereas mm. Morrison went and wrote the JLA, he wrote New X Men, he wrote Superman, he wrote Batman, and sort of embraced it. And it's almost like the two of them had started in a similar place mm. and then took different directions. Whereas you said, as you said, 
uh, Morrison is, I mean the title of the talk is Magic and Marketing. Morrison knows about marketing, whereas more seems less interested in it, and that in itself is its own form of marketing. Well, if you, if you do a search for Alan Moore interviews from the 1980s, he was on television. He was on gay and kids shows talking about Swamp Thing. There is, a, uh, I've seen an interview he gave with himself where he's in the audience in the theatre and he's also on stage. It's actually a bit like Alice in Sunderland, Brian Talbot, there's a sequence in that which is very similar, I don't know if that inspired it. But Moore is in the audience dressed in black. He's like, rawr, 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 rawr. and then there's a sort of happy Moore on stage in white going, oh, but I want to do this, you know. And he's really being entertaining, and he's being really flirtatious, and he's really fun. And like I said, I think he, he did what he needed to do. He was the first. He got out there. He made his money, he made his name, and he's like, oh, I'm gone. And he left. And if you read Proposal for Twilight the Superheroes, he talks about merchandising, he talks about opportunities for making toys and everything. Um, you know, he, he understood the value of marketing. But he doesn't need to continue plumbing that market. He's done it. He's gone. Yeah. Morrison's still there. And the next stage for Morrison is what I'm really interested in. Because he's doing these independent books now. He's got a film he's been working on, like a fictional film. And he's doing his Wonder Woman book, and that looks really interesting because he said he's he's claiming to be studying every iteration of feminist thought since the since the Greeks onwards. And he's gonna try and sum that all up. In one book, and basically ignore um, uh, Wonder Woman since William Moulton Marston, you know, which I'm all for, because you know I love the original Wonder Woman, um, and if he can maybe add to that, that'd be brilliant. But that I think that will be his final word on American superheroes. I think he's ready for the Alan Moore retreat now. Next stage. Uh, I think Brad Morrison needs to do a villain that he's going to be the hero. Yes, yes, yes. I saw a wonderful uh, fan art, piece of fan art the other day, and it was Alan Moore as Doctor Strange. And you guessed it, Grant Morrison as his Chinese manservant <laughs> beside him. Wong? Is it Wong? He's got, the, he's got the traditional outfit and everything. I thought that was, that was hilarious. And, you know, it must be infuriating. Like, even me talking about the bloody relationship again. I mean, and, and as I said, it's part of marketing, but it must drive him to distraction. I found um, an article from 1992, I think it was, and it was like, Grant Morrison, da 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 second sentence, Alan Moore, <laughs> second sentence. You know, and he's been living with that. So yeah, it must be maddening. But does he, I mean, if he's going to set himself up against Alan Moore, I mean, sure. you don't have to try that hard to be the more likable one out of you and Alan yeah. Moore. It's not that I find Moore charming. <laughs> when do you realise he's taking the piss? It's fine. The, the bit where he said that he'd actually met John Constantine. Yeah. That, that was golden. That was lovely. Hmm. Um, you met him at a pub. He had a fight with him or something. I mean, the other one, the, uh, there was that, but there was a better one. I, I think he like decided, no, he needed to redraft that and yeah. make a, a, a different plan because you know, like, he meets him coming up out of a, a tube and um, <laughs> he, he, Constantine lights his cigarette and says, you, know, you want to know the trick about magic, right? <laughs> and he can't can do it. <laughs> which is classic Constantine. But, <laughs> sorry, the, would Morrison make more money if he was the villain? Would he do better? So Jason does as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, who obviously is the villain. 
Well, I mean, people, people root for him. I mean, maybe they're villains too. Yeah. Maybe this is like Legion of Doom here. Uh, I don't know, but um, yeah, I mean, people. some people think Alan Moore is the villain. Some people think Alan Moore is shitting all over our pastime. You know, oh, he's, he's left comics. He hates us, you know, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but um, you feel like a neglected child. Um, I don't know. I think with Final Crisis, he was both the hero and the villain. Because there were the people who championed Grant Morrison as our saviour, mm. and they all went out and bought Final Crisis. Mm. And there were the people who said, Final Crisis is an unreadable piece of shit. Mm. And they all went out and bought Final Crisis. Yes. <laughs> and then he sold it to everyone, and everyone yes. bought it. And yes. he made the most money. <laughs> yeah, all the way around. And I loved it. And then I, I looked it up online, and I said, what did that mean? And everyone's like, no one's got fucking any idea. At least it's all Grant Morrison. <laughs> I think it ties back to what you were saying. I mean, like, um, what I was trying to talk about a one bit is that he's moved beyond referring to books and films and music and all the other things which have external meanings that he can enforce. And now he's talking about superhero history as a thing. So Final Crisis is the capstone to his little narrative, you know, and also him saying, leave this bloody, leave your bloody continuity alone. You know, stop doing that. <laughs> But then they do it anyway, and that's, you know, and can't it seems, wait. It seems like that's when he's at his best, because when he's doing the marketing, mm. you know, game, he's, he can be hit and miss, but when he's just talking about the nature of the superhero, which I, my personal favorite is Ultimate mm. Superman, where I think that that's what he's doing, is he's just saying, this is the nature of the superhero. Yeah. That's when he's at his best, because he's not, there's no other external controversies or anything like that. He's just saying, this is why the world needs Superman, whether it's a real person in this fictional universe or whether we, the reader, need Superman as a fictional character. If you think about it, he's actually a very encouraging example of an enlightened fanboy, you know? Because he has this obsessive recall of all this stuff, and he actually puts it to some pretty interesting uses. He's not spending all his time on the internet getting into arguments with people. He's actually about, no, my version of this character is the right one. He actually just writes it, and he just sells it. And he convinces other people he's right, you know, which is, that's quite clever. So there's nothing wrong with passion. There's nothing wrong with an obs obsessive degree of passion if you can turn it to some purpose. You know? um, in the bibliography, there's actually an article in there, I think it's from the Comics Journal, Laura Sneddon, um, I'm, okay, thanks. Uh, Laura yeah. Sneddon contacted um, Grant Morrison ask his response to uh, Paldrick O'Meloid uh, he did an article called The Strange Case of Grant Morrison and Alan Moore and Grant rewrote the article to give his version of events and it's at the bottom there, it's the second last one and if you look at, if you look at the article there's Paldrick's text Paldrick, Paldrick, Paldrick and then Grant Morrison writes in red <laughs> correcting him and I looked at that and I was like dude, that's like a message board forum argument you know, where you know when people quote one thing you said, and if you're wrong because you you misspelled that word, you know, therefore Obama's Satan. You know, I mean that type of obsessive response. And he slipped there. I, I I really didn't know what he was doing there. I think he could have used a bit of Moore's hauteur, you know, and just stepped back, not got involved. But he gets in there, he gets stuck in. Yeah, but he means that. He's in. I know he's into it. Yeah. He needs to oppose himself to something. To, mm. to be him, like, that, that's his whole, as above, so below thing, he, mm. he needs, like, he created the, the Alan Moore thing, mm. as far as I can tell, like, yeah. I mean, Alan Moore said, yeah, okay, this is guy, I know that this is happening, 
Mm. But that Morrison was creating the, the tension between the two because yeah. that, that that helps him define himself and that's where he gets his power from. It's really interesting because he's given at least five different versions as to why they've had a falling out. Yeah. One involving a death threat. <laughs> so, uh, you know, is he just making it all up? Well, to keep it all going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then why do you think that this now people said know so little about him and Mark Miller? Because Mark Miller is also such a huge mm. name. He's obviously not Alan Moore in terms of like. A, you that's know, it. The people aren't as interested. Big name. He's people a very big name. He's like one of the biggest names in the yeah. industry, even though people don't really like his work as much. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of people could say a lot of bad things about some of his yeah. recent work, but he's a huge name, and yet people don't really seem to know that much about. Him. They just know that they don't like each other anymore. Grant mm. Morrison has said yeah, recently that if I saw him walking down the street, I wouldn't stop my car. You know, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Hit him, you know? That was interesting. Things like that. That's but one of the few times he's actually addressed. In Patrick Meany's film, he makes some oblique reference to. Um, the worst person in the world. Yeah. He doesn't say who. He says there's this guy. He's the worst yeah. person <laughs> in the world. But is that then the difference between the magic, the fantasy, and the real? Because the Mark Miller is something that actually, actually happens. happens. Yeah. Whereas this more thing is fantasy, and you can adapt it and change it to his own desire. Yeah. Well, he's a writer. Exactly. Mm. And that's what Moore's response has been. I'm not going to get into it with him because he's a writer. And he's a very good writer. He actually said it. He's a very good writer. I'm not going to get into it because it'll just perpetuate it. And he knows that. And he knows enough to just go, no. I don't care if he's a jerk. I don't care if either of them are jerks. I like what they do. And I'm kind of sick of the fighting. But, um, you know, on some level it's entertaining. But yeah, I'm really curious about the Miller thing. And Miller's advance into movies. Yeah. And politics I was hitting this week? Mm. He's at number ten? Like he, they're courting for some role, which is terrifying. <laughs> um it's like that storyline from Zenith. It's just oh well, Jesus. Um But no one's talking about that as much. And like I said, Colin Smith is writing a book about Mark Miller. If you go to Too Busy Think About My Comics, he, he keeps spruiking it and he, he's publishing it too secular. And I'm I'm going to write to him after this and I'm going to say, dude, write this. <laughs> You've done all this research. You know who goes through with what. You know, you know. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure there's resentment there about how much of Miller's success is due to Morrison. Of course. And Miller is advanced on him. You know. Well, it's, it's just the, uh, the evidence that you don't know how much, how much is true, but the fact is that after they had their falling out, you look mm. at the quality of Miller's work post that falling out and before there's, there's, a, there's a big difference mm. and I think that, and that's what you were saying before about you don't care what the person is like it's what their work is like and that's the that's the main thing yeah you know? and that's um, another thing that I wanted to ask was with all the things that he says I feel like people are sort of stepping a little bit out of favor with Grant Morrison in recent years mm. because I feel like uh, and this could just be me but I think a lot of people the response to action comics was not very positive Mm, yeah. And I think a lot of, even the most recent, say, 10 issues of Batman Inc. have not been as good as the previous issues. You know, yeah. He's sort of his, and I'm personally not very fond of Happy. A lot of his most recent work is, yeah, <laughs> a lot of his stuff. work in the last couple of years hasn't really been that great. Yeah. And then you have, when, when he's being outlandish and saying these things, but he's putting out a book like All Star Superman, you don't care. It's yeah. part of the, the circus that goes along with it. Yeah. But then when the books don't, don't hold up. Yeah. Then, then you get a backlash. He's actually made public comments to the effect of I'm drained. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm clapped out. You know, and like you were saying before, he's finished his story. As far as he's linked them all up. 
Yeah. So that framework is there now. He can walk away. You know. Um, I think he needs to. Yeah, I think he needs to reinvigorate himself. I miss. I miss the uh, the Grant Morrison from the eighties and nineties. You know, he was really excited. All Star Superman. The filth. I love. I think the filth is amazing. I think it's brilliant. Um, it's like like George Bataille, you know, sort of embrace perversity, you know, see where it takes you. Lord Fanny in The Invisibles, similar idea, you know, get down in the filth, get down in the dirt, and you know, get wisdom from that. Um, but if he could get some of that energy back from Doom Patrol, I love that book so much. I think the angel's brilliant, and you know, I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah. Wrap up. Yeah, okay. I think we're wrapping up. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming along. Um, drop me a line or whatever if you're interested in getting in touch. I'm going to continue working on this for um, for a book. I think it's due at the end of the month, in the year, <laughs> the end of the year. Um, so yeah, I'll be putting out the word on the moments report. Yeah. And Jason's looking at me for some reason. What? No. Um, if you guys are all comic fans, if you're interested in comics, this country has a phenomenal troupe of comic creators right now. Melbourne has a phenomenal troupe of comic creators right now. Um, I'm trying to do my bit on Bearding the Geek talking about Australian comics, but if you buy anything from Milk Shadow, buy anything from Gestalt, buy anything from Black House, these guys are putting out some really good work. Um, yeah, and I hope you just support Hope Comics because they're, they're not found to superheroes. They're doing different genres, they're doing different styles. It's very exciting. And uh, yeah, it's great to see. So, take that from side, I hope. Cheers.